Trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Mic, a Vent podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists, musicians, songwriters, and everyone else in the music industry in the UK and beyond, discussing their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. My special guest for this episode of Behind the Mic is my good mate, Rory Aitken. Rory is a music and sound engineer, mixer, writer, and producer. He is not normally on the mic, but he is literally always behind the mic, just a few more yards away from the singers he is helping sound crisp and nice. Rory started his music production journey at the University of Portsmouth and then went on to study at the world-famous and iconic Abbey Road Studios in London, where he cut his teeth, learned his craft, and has now graduated from. It's accurate to say that music probably saved Rory's life. In this episode, we talk about the power of music, self-awareness, suicidality, thinking on your feet and learning from mistakes, as well as the power of growth, and of course, a plug for the upcoming Just Checking In Live number four on Saturday, October the 15th. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Mic with Rory Aitken. Rory, welcome to Behind the Mic, mate. It has been a very long time coming to get this pod in order and finally do it and this running order was also so old I actually had to tweak it quite significantly to reflect the fact that you've now graduated from Abbey Road you have a full-time job and are generally getting on with life so first of all mate how are you yeah you know I'm all right getting on obviously things are starting to finally pick up now as you said it's been a while since we had this in the work so finally getting to be able to do this and talk about what's going on is good so yeah no overall things are looking up excellent mate and just for the listeners I've said it in the intro previously but you've been the sound engineer for all of the just checking in nights so far i love working with you i think we have a really great working relationship i'm looking forward to doing the next one which is october the 15th please guys if this goes out after the gig for god's sake i've got got no control over that but please if you have a board ticket please buy a ticket for god's sake (laughs) one of my final plugs on pods for this without even more delays to this podcast episode mate are you ready to start the show i am indeed Let's start at the beginning, Raw, as we always do on Behind the Mic, and talk about your music journey, and specifically your music production journey. So I said in the intro that you're literally behind the mic in all the work that you do, and usually it's in a separate room to the microphone, sometimes it isn't, but just tell me how this journey began, and also perhaps where your love affair with music started as well, you know, favourite influences, what inspired you to pick up or learn instruments and stuff like that. Oh, to go all the way back to the beginning, my family are all musicians, all of them are. My mum and my dad, they are professional musicians and they work in the industry. More my mum at the moment, same with my step-family, my stepdad, he's very big into the industry. In fact, my mum and stepdad, they've worked on a lot of film music as well. So if you hear Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, that's my mum and my dad on the double bass and the music there. I was going to say, I thought you were about to say John Williams, but... No, <laughs> it's not John Williams. <laughs> if imagine, I, w- I wouldn't be... Uh, if you heard Star Wars, it's my mum. I was like, Ooh. Yeah, I wouldn't be in a two-bedroom flat if it was uh, John Williams. No, so I got a lot of my musical aspirations and, dare I say, talent from them. And I started the guitar when I was at primary school. Loved it, carried it on all the way through. And then it came to a pivotal point when I was doing my A-levels. And I suck at a lot of the things like uh, exam sides of things, but I'm a very creative person. And my teacher at once at high school, he told me to do music technology. And I thought, "Mm, I don't particularly want to do music technology. I want to do music. And he sat me down and said, no, it is very much a creative subject. It's not what you think it is. You do a lot of compositions and you also learn a lot of what goes into making music, not just... You saw it as like quite admin-y rather than not just say admin-y. what it actually was. Like when I was younger, Mechanical, I was a bit, you know what yeah, I mean? I, yeah. It was also the fact that when I was younger, I was quite a music snob. I've changed a lot and I've grown <laughs> up a lot. We all were music snobs <laughs> at some point. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so when I was in high school, when I hear music technology, it was a B-tech. And it was also like the people who would go there saying, I'm going to make sick beats. Right. And when I was younger, I thought sick beats was just, it wasn't what it, it is 
and what I see it as now, because I see it as now as a real talent. Yeah. Whereas back then, I saw someone hitting one key on a keyboard and that was it. Yeah. And I think as well, there must have been an attitude back then. And mm. perhaps it still pervades today about B-Takes being DOSes and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I was very reluctant in that regards. And my teacher confirmed it's nothing like that. So I apprehensively went into it knowing as well that music A-level is a completely different game to music GCC, which I now know. So when I did music technology, I fell in love with it. It was absolutely amazing. Not only was I being very creative and doing compositions, I was learning what goes into actually recording music, but more importantly, mixing music. I then went on to do that at University of Portsmouth where I did music technology and again, fell in love with it and was just blown away by how much more I could learn. Thinking I had learned it all, went out to try and get a job, didn't do very well at all. And then my mum and my stepdad, they found a course on at the very world famous Abbey Road Studios. Mm. And I was like thinking, I'm never gonna get into that. I'm never gonna get into it. Fine, I'll play along with what they want me to do because they think I can do well. I was like, nah, I'm not gonna What was that in. audition process like then? <laughs> the audition, so it was signing up with um, a personal statement and you had to put in a portfolio of four songs or things that you've worked on. So I did stuff that I did at university, which got me my top marks. There was also an audition process where I thought it was going to be very much, you had to play perfectly. They wanted to see you do something amazing. And I was on holiday at the time of getting the email saying, you've got an interview. Mm -hmm. And I would have had two days between getting back from Spain to go into this interview. Where I hadn't touched guitar for two weeks. So I had to do a lot of practice in two days. And I chose... That's a, cramming, isn't it? It's a big cram, <laughs> That's yeah. musical cramming. Yeah, so I chose a song which I can play really well. It's quite simple, but when you do it technically well, it can look quite impressive. And I practiced and practiced and practiced for hours every day. Got in there and I played damn near flawlessly, I would say. But I, obviously, there's always going to be errors, especially when you're nervous. And then I found out afterwards that, no, they didn't want me to actually play the song. They just wanted to see how well I held the guitar and how well... I knew my chords and my stuff basically. Like so that was quite a basic level then. Yeah, it was really intimidating. Right. Like the performance side of it was really basic. The actual interview, it was quite a head scratcher because the head lecturer, he likes to kind of throw curveballs. Like one of his favorite questions to ask new students is if you were to talk to an alien who couldn't understand what music is and had a very little grasp of human language, how would you describe music to him? Wow. And it's like, yeah, what it's question like, that is. It's just really, really bizarre. So you're just kind of like, what? And he's like, yeah. And he can't understand what you're saying, but he can hear your thoughts. What? So everyone would say, well, I'll just think of a <laughs> that's song. very theatre-loving. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Like, just think of a song. Like, But he doesn't know what music is. How does he know that that's a song? So yeah, like he was very weird in that regards. But I think what I can definitely say that impressed him was he asked the question, what is it that I love most about music? And I said... I know this may go against a lot of the older musicians side of things, especially my parents, but I find classical music too restrictive. What I love about music now and music of what I like doing and what I ended up learning more about in Abbey Road is that it is freeing. I don't need a score with all this terminology written on it and all these dynamic markings and tempo markings and Italian words written all over it. I don't need that because I know music. I know I can write music, I can make music, I can mix music. And having something on a piece of paper is so restrictive. It's like I can't put my freedom and my creativity stamp on a piece of music. So it has to be by the books of a person who died hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Mm. And I truly believe he actually genuinely loved that answer so much. That that's what tits me in favour. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> People think of Abbey Road, they think of the Beatles, they think of this very world famous music studio. So learning there, did it feel quite surreal when you entered? Very surreal. It was such a weird world because it is very secretive. Yeah. I, can, I can give you a little bit of insights into it, but like... Yeah, it's don't reveal too very, many secrets. Oh yeah. yeah, no, I'll tell you where they keep <laughs> everything. No, it, it's very, very secretive in there. But at the same time, if you think it's so secretive, you go in thinking that there's like secret pathways and <laughs> corridors that you get lost down. It's, you know, you need a map or something like that. No, it's actually quite open. It's very easy to get around. But also they have this long corridor of old pieces of technology that they no longer use anymore. But because there's so much of it, they can't put it in their storage rooms. It's clean, but it's also this weird kind of mishmash of eclectic... That's what the BBC is, mate, exactly. and I used to work there, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't ever get to see the archives or anything like that, because obviously that'll be kept off limits. But yeah, it is surreal, and everyone there is so friendly until it comes to the very famous people that you end up seeing in the, in the corridors, because then it's very serious. Mm. And I guess as well, when we're talking about 
Abbey Road. What were some of the realities that you can tell the listeners about just being there when it comes to the people you interacted mm. with? Were they the stereotype of, you know, jazz hands through the corridors like people hear about Rada and stuff? Or was it just very well-balanced, adjusted people who wanted to kind of get on and try and make it in the music industry? It was a mix of the two. It wasn't as much jazz hands. Right. But it was a mix of the two in regards to... It depended on what artist you saw. So, for instance, the two big ones that I like to do the contrast with is Elton John and Ed Sheeran. Elton John, he was there for the... He saw his premiere of Rocket Man. They showed it in the studios first to family, friends and those who worked on it to make sure it's all good. And Elton John, he was very much just saying, I'm here to do my job. I'm here to do work. He'll give a little nod and a hello, but that was it. Whereas Ed Sheeran, he would actively not like speak to us about wanting to know our personal life, but he would, you know, stop, shake our hand, say, hello, oh, how are you nice. doing? Yeah, yeah he's a yeah. lovely, lovely man. And that's the kind of thing, it's a cross between the two. But studying there, you get a very strict rule. If you interact with celebrities, which you will, they have to talk to you. You can't go talk to them. If they start talking to you, have a little conversation and be polite. But you can't go up to them and be like, Fanboy. You've got to basically be very respectful. And I did meet a fair share of people. Some of them were really nice. Some of them... (laughs) Made me feel uncomfortable. We'll, I'm not going to tell who. We'll talk about the people who weren't <laughs> off air, mate. Yeah, off air. I'll tell you more off air. I'll tell you about yeah. the BBC ones as well. <laughs> as you went on this course, mate, what skills did you learn? Not just in how to interact with those celebrities, but about yourself in how you worked with other artists mm. from a professional capacity and how you just developed as a person too. Well, it's one of those things where... How it started for me, because even though I had gotten over a lot of this music snobbery that I had, Abbey Road was where that officially ended. Because there's only 20 people on the course with you. And each of those 20 people will bring something different. Even if they like the same genres of music to you, they'll bring something so different that you have to listen to and you have to respect. And seeing them either perform it or mix it, you then suddenly grow this massive amount of respect for that. So for instance, if we use what I said earlier, the people who make the beats, if you just think of it as someone who's pressing a keyboard, obviously you're going to think, oh, that's nothing. But seeing one of my best friends in that course, who was an amazing rapper, an amazing beat maker, do the process of, you know, on the spot making up his lyrics or being able to find a beat with any random thing like someone hitting a spoon on their shoe whilst they're waiting in the common area you're just thinking there's a level of creativity there you have to respect and it blows you away there's just such a mix of talent it's just absolutely amazing and to grow as a person there was even better because when I was at university I was still very much seen as the musician even Mm, though I was a music guy I was the music guy but not in the technical sense in the actual musical sense at school, I was a middle ground music guy, but at university, I was more of the music guy. Whenever we did work in the studios, my best friend there, he would be the one behind the desk. He would be the one doing everything. I would be the one in the live room doing all the actual instrument playing. In fact, there's one brilliant moment where because we need the drummer, but we didn't particularly like people on our course, I ended up doing the drums. I'm not a drummer. So what I did is I just said to him, you set everything up, press record, and one at a time, I just hit one drum part at a time, and then I cut it all up and sequenced it together, so it was all in the correct order. It sounded really good, but that's the kind of thing where I'm not that technical in that regards. Then I went to Abbey Road, and I remember, this is going to link into the mental health stuff later, there was one day I was really not okay. It was a bad mental health day, and everyone in the course had gone off to do a meet and greet with artists, and it was kind of this idea... The producers would, uh, and mix engineers would pair off with artists and they would collab. Barely any of them actually collabed with anyone in the end anyway, so it's not like I missed much. But I stayed behind and I got full reign of the studios for the entire day. So I sat down with my favourite technical assistant at the Institute and she sat me down and went through everything in the studio. And from that point, I went from being the music person to the technician. And I became the person who would now be behind the desk, behind the mic, doing everything, setting it up. I learned how to mix and edit everything so much better than I already knew how to do. And I went from kind of a mediocre student to actually in the final exam being in the top five. It's really interesting you say that then because you ended up doing that progression from a real low point. Mm -hmm. So how do you look back on it? Are you you almost in a way 
glad that it happened. Yeah, I am, weirdly <laughs> enough. It's not very often I'd say, wow, I'm glad that I'm depressed. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm very much glad that that happened because if it wasn't for that, if I wasn't in that low point, I don't know if I would have ended up how I am now, being in the place I am now and knowing as much as I know now. And it's thanks to, thanks to my depression, but also thanks to that technician who honestly was without a doubt one of the best, if not the best. And she's now actually the head runner at Abbey Road Studios. And oh, wow. she was even participating in mixing a song which won a Grammy. So she's done very well for herself in that time since leaving. Were you ever worried at any point, either at Portsmouth, at Wanstead High, or at Abbey Road? I guess Abbey Road less so. But were you ever worried that music would become your identity rather than a part of it? There, it's definitely always going to be that. And it's even now there's that kind of mindset of what is my identity going to be? Like, I think that's a fixation that goes on throughout life. It does get easier and better as life goes on. But I think there was a part of me that was worried that I would lose that identity. And I remember in, I think it was more once at high school than University of Portsmouth, where I tried to retain some of my childhood wonders, shall we say, in a hopes that, my identity wouldn't just be music. I wouldn't go up and meet people and be like, hey, I'm Rory, I'm a musician. I could be like, hey, I'm Rory, I'm a massive nerd. As well or as just, I'm Rory. I'm just Rory, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, I've, I've got lots of passions. I love food, cats. And anime, as we spoke anime, about. Exactly, yeah. anime. <laughs> you know, I go to Comic-Con, I go out for walks and I see friends and everything like that. Because there was a point I once at high school, I picked nothing but creative subjects for mm. A-level and GCSEs. So in GCC in particular, I was doing art, drama and music. And I had to divide my time to stay after school, do coursework for all three subjects. But school finishes at 3.45 or something like that. Close at 7. There's only so much time I can actually do in all of that. So I was worried that if I spend most of my time in music, which I was doing, I would only be seen as music. The music person. I would be the music person. The... And it's very easy to get into exactly. that click and that identity, especially exactly. in secondary school. Yeah. Let's move on to kind of the work that you've done since graduation. Because mm. I didn't realise this at the time, but in my desperation to find a sound engineer after my first one pulled out during the second just checking in live that was actually the first one that you'd yeah. ever done and, and thank you to lloyd who's you know close friend of the pods interviewed me close friend of yours rory who introduced us and connected us otherwise i wouldn't have had a sound engineer the gig would have gone on so for anyone who will be there they will remember just how stressed i was just after the sound check had been done and people started flowing in, I was a bit sweaty and uh, a little bit little bit anxious. <laughs> there was definitely a reason for that. So, Raw, do you just want to talk about your perspective on that night and, and the challenges and successes you had from your first ever sound engineer gig, basically? Yeah, in, in the nicest way possible, because it was my first gig, I was stressed about so much that I could probably say so many things about why I think you were stressed on that night. It might not be the reason yeah, why you were stressed. It probably means you did tell me that I probably could have known with or something. Well, it, yeah. so yeah, for me, I think, at least from my perspective, the stress of that day, because as you said, it was my first gig. I didn't want to tell you that because I wanted it to go well and I wanted you to actually keep me on. So, hey, it worked. I don't think it, I don't think I would have been affected, to be honest, mate. I think I'd have just been like, we just need to make sure it's good yeah. rather than like, oh, I'm going to be like more on you. It was just like, I needed someone and you were there. Yeah. yeah. So the stress for me was, or from what I remember from that night, the band weren't all there or were they all? No, they were all there when I first got there, but we weren't allowed to do a sound check until damn near half an hour, an hour before the show was starting. Yeah, I want to say like an hour and a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And their idea of a sound check, as in the band's idea of a sound check, was, hey, can you hear me on the microphone? Is my guitar on? Is my bass guitar on? Okay, that's it. These are things that I didn't know were quite basic at the time, but I thought, oh, this is just what goes on at a standard sound check. (laughs) Whereas I would, like, personally, I would have liked it where they did at least a run-through of a song. In the second gig that we did to the last one, it went a lot smoother. There was a lot more problems, but because we had a lot more time, we were able to fix the we problems. To, just about. <laughs> just about, yeah. Yeah, just um, about. Because to not go too technically into it, every single room has a different sound, a different yeah. energy to it, where when you play music, there's going to be more chances for what is called a feedback loop. So when you're at a gig and you hear the, that yeah. is a feedback loop. And in the venue we were, the stage was so small, the, the mics had to sit off the stage. This, is the, third, this is the last one we did. This uh, is no, the, um, second, the second one. The, my first one. Your first one, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the mics had to stand off the stage, angled up a lot more for the singers, but the speakers were right above the microphones facing down. Because we didn't do a proper sound check, 
when the first song played, the singer was saying, I can't hear myself, turn myself up, which naturally he wouldn't be able to see, hear himself because mm. he's behind the speakers. Mm. And instantly a feedback loop happened and I had to instantly duck it down. Uh, that was a minor issue compared to what actually happened afterwards, to be fair. Yeah, that was a minor <laughs> issue. Then there we had someone from the venue itself coming in, trying to change all of the settings on the desk mid-show. Yep. He did that twice. Which I didn't know about until after the gig. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I also couldn't hear anything because I was on the side of the stage Again, behind the speakers, yep. I would have to constantly run out into the crowd, hear everything, run back yep. in, make an edit. And it was at those moments when I would run out, he would run in, change everything, run out. I would run back in, seeing it, <laughs> be like, what are you doing? <laughs> and change it all back. So I don't know if that was the stress that you were talking about. I no, no, my so stress was the drums. That was the stress oh, for me. Oh, the drums. The clicks. Yeah, yeah. yeah which that almost was... broke the gig. And I distinctly remember sitting there and you going, I might just have to go to Stratford to buy some. And I was like, "Raw, we're half an hour before we're half an hour yeah, before doors." <laughs> that that that's, I remember that now. Yep, that was something that happened in the last podcast, uh, the podcast um, show as well, where the drums. That was slightly different, though, yeah, because we it had almost time. it almost broke the gig, but it wasn't like we had a very last minute solution that the band said we could have done if all things went to pot, but we ended up just rolling through it anyway. But the second one, your first one, yeah. that almost did actually break the yes. gig. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. And the yeah, the band, the band were like, I remember they played really well that night, all things considered. I did have later work with them, which I'm not going to go too much into. Yeah, let's leave that. <laughs> but I will say something on their credit. They are so unbelievably talented. Yes, that, that is true. After seeing them perform just for a little bit, a lot of my worries did go because of how talented that they were. Mm. They probably, if something like if they, a drumstick broke or a guitar broke, they'll probably just get up and start doing a cappella because they were so talented. Something like that. But the next gig we're going to do, I've now got a brand new mixing desk. It's going to be a lot more easy. We've got no drum kit. No drum kit. <laughs> the artist is amazing. Guys Not that are... Ilarico weren't, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I know that Freddie's already plugged it, but now I'm going to plug it. Get your tickets. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> I'm going to have to force out a few pods so this can go out before October 15th. I've only got two weeks. You've also produced your first ever commercial song in the last couple of years. Yes. So tell the listeners about that, what impact that had on your mental health, and I guess an achievement as well for your, your personal life. Yeah, so it's a bit of a weird one because even though, yes, it is released, I kind of went on a bit of an old school route. It's on some CDs in the local area that we are in now. I uh, did an arts trail with a, a local artist who made lots of meditative art pieces, and I made music for those pieces. But I, on the last one that I did with her, I also snuck on one of my own tracks that I had personally done and it was nothing to do with the artwork. So there's about 50 CDs rocking around out in the world with that music on, which did, which, you know, I made money on. And it felt good because it was that whole, that is now my, my stamp. That is everything that is me. I am now out there in the world as an artist and it's only going to go further from there. The only problem is maybe this is me being self-deprecating. I don't know. I had to sing on that piece because when it was being made, the singers I had lined up, they had to pull out last second. So because it was a coursework piece and the deadline was in a couple of days, I had to sing it. And I am not the greatest of singers. I've gotten better over the years, but since that point, I... Did yeah. you train classically singing or did you just learn... Oh, I don't know how she was trained, but all I remember was she was... I meant you, uh, mate. Oh, me. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I am not a trained singer. I used to do a bit of singing. So in primary school... I did get like lead roles in play, the school plays to do singing because yep. I was good at singing. But since nature had its way, and the when the yeah, yeah the puberty hits, the puberty I've been there, hits, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I still get the voice cracked. <laughs> but uh, oh, that's pain when, you're, when your voice when your voice breaks. So you, yep. you can't hit the high notes anymore. <laughs> exactly. That's pain, man. And I stopped singing from that point on, and I never trained at all after that. And then as I've gotten older and I've been listening to more music and I've been getting more confident in myself, I do sing along to things. And I would say my singing has gotten better since when I first sung that song. But I have got an artist lined up who I'm going to be working with when she gets back from Prague. We've got loads of songs ready to be recorded and she's going to re-record the vocals for that song. In fact, I've got one song that is practically finished. She just wants to re-record one and Can bit. you still use Abbey Road? I can. Oh, wow. Amazing. Got, so that's a big plug for you, mate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only stipulation is I've got to go through the students. The students have to basically, they've got to train. So I've got to be the producer in the back seat and say, hey, can you plug this in? Can we use that yep. reverb unit? We need to adjust the EQs over here kind of thing. I can't really touch the desk much, mm. but 
I probably will. I'll just be mm. like, hey, you just watch and learn and I'll talk you through what I'm doing because that's what helped me. I had a lot of that where I just got into with the older students. I got in with them and just they took me into the studios. So it's kind of like the constant revolving of the circle. But that song, it was good to get it out. It was nervous. I was nervous at first giving it out. It's like, oh, what if people don't like it? What if people don't like it? And then I thought, ultimately, it's my music. I'm selling these CDs to people who you know, may not like that side of music, but ultimately that's not the point. It's for me and yeah, it helped my mental health massively and I can't wait to go forwards making more music and I'm constantly meeting artists who I'm constantly saying, we need to do something together, we need to yeah. work together. It's hard with artists though, mate. It's like getting them on a pod, you go, oh yeah, yeah come on, they're like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Never hear from them again. Yeah, exactly. Or like, you hear from them three weeks and they go, yeah, yeah, I'm still keen, man. I'm like, bro, let's get the record date yeah. in. Never hear from them for another one or two months. So long. Hey, do you still want to do the podcast? Yeah, I'm free today. Oh, today? No. No, no. Oh, mate, it's even like, you're free in two weeks? No, no, sorry, I can't do that. It's <laughs> like, oh, Let's reflect then on this music production journey, Raw. So how has it shaped you into the person I'm speaking to today? And what has it taught you about yourself? It's shaped me into this person who I would say, even though I would always feel that I was a well-rounded person, I felt like this has made me even more well-rounded. I went from someone who was still very respectful of everything and everyone, but still had that music, like we've said before, music snobbery going on. Whereas now I feel like with this whole production course, that final side of me has gone. I feel I'm now so much more receptive to people and it kind of, it comes into quite the obvious fluidity in my work now. And I have so many students who, one of them, for instance, is a very, very keen guitarist. And he's a little bit like I was who thought rock is the only way forward. If it's not rock, it's not nothing. And he wants to turn everything into rock track. And it's just like, uh, no, 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 no. It's like the emo kids, isn't it? Exactly. Everything rise against. Exactly. Bring me the horizon or nothing. That was me. That was me. <laughs> the rise against all the way. Still love that band. Is when I was have to go to him and be like, no, 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 we're turning down the distortion. Because we're playing Valerie. I will only play Lamb of God. <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. This is Amy Winehouse. Come oh, on. Okay. Yeah. Ain't no man high enough doesn't have distortion. Come on. Let's go. <laughs> and so going from seeing what I used to be like in that student to how I am now, it's like, it's just that whole 180. It's completely revolutionized how I see music, how I perceive music. It does come with a bit of a crutch of now whenever I go to a gig. I hear everything. Yeah, I hear all the frequencies, all the sounds. I know exactly what's going on. And I have to turn off. I was at a gig last night and I had to keep saying to my girlfriend, I'm off duty. I'm not working today. I'm not working today because I kept hearing things. But it's taught me, the biggest thing it's taught me is patience. I know that's quite cliche in many ways, but there is an element that is unbelievably true utmost with this because you can't just say, all right, I'm going to do this five minutes, bosh, done you have to take your time. You also have to sometimes zoom right into the audio files and really find where there's that one problem, that one split second. They can drive you mad. It, they can, yeah. yeah. But if, funny story, there was one time when I was doing my own composition at Abbey Road and I wanted it to be better than my first one, even though my first one was really good. I w stayed in the studios basically day and night and I only got kicked out when I had to get kicked out. So I'd be there from nine in the morning till 11 o'clock at night working solidly on this composition and it damn near drove me mad mm. to the point where I was hearing something that was impossible to go out of tune going out of tune. And I got the head technician in, the technician on call that day in, all my friends in. They all said, no, Rory, shut up. You're going mad. Yeah, yeah, and the head yeah. technician literally had to pick me up and kick me out of the studios he just said rory go home sleep i was like no think about what you've done <laughs> it's just... doing in two days i need to do like yeah it's finished go home <laughs> so it can drive you mad so all of those things have really has it really is important to be patient and if there's one thing i can say to anyone be it a musician or anyone else who's listening patience is always the biggest key if you're dealing with something difficult be it in your life or with someone being patient can help you see a different perspective on what either that person's going through or what you're going through. And it will help you really just analyze everything perfectly, methodically, and just give you that time and space to just work through it. 
We've talked about Rory, the music engineer, and all about your music production journey, mate. Let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Rory we meet here? Oh, oh, diving deep. Well, so there's, oh, there was always mental health issues. Some things I, I have to go into, some things I, want, mm-hmm. I won't go into. Obviously, there's family issues that everyone goes through. Even if you say, oh, no, I've never had any issues growing up with my family. Chances are you have, you just don't remember They're it. They're probably lying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, even if you look back on old fears, things that really impacted you. Like, when I was younger, I had the biggest fear of dogs. Which meant that from the time I was in, from going from primary school to high school, I didn't go out at all. Wow, that extreme. Extreme. Yeah, yeah. I was petrified of dogs. I'm not anymore. I love dogs now, but I was petrified of them. Where did that come from then? To make it that you love them Ooh. now? Because like I was making you just say, oh, I can tolerate them now. No, I, I love them. So now. where did that? Where did that come from? Did, was there like a negative experience you had with one? Or? I I have vague memories of being chased by dogs jumped by dogs the biggest one i remember i was coming out of the local forest just down the road yeah. i was a kid with a as a kid There's dogs with, everywhere there, exactly yeah, yeah. but i had a stick and i was waving it around thinking it was a lightsaber or something like that you know kid stuff and i would just exited the park with my family and this woman pulled up with her car opened the back seat and i kid you not 20 schnauzers <laughs> I don't know how 20. I counted. I don't know how I counted them in my panic, but it was twenty schnauzers ran out of this car, saw the stick, instantly yeah. chased me. I thought it was a stick, so I threw the stick instantly. They still all chased me, and I just hear the woman behind me saying, "Don't run! It will make it worse." <laughs> a little kid seeing these sharp teeth running out of them is like, "No, no, no! There's twenty of those little things. There's one of me. I'm running." <laughs> so um, there are many moments that I can pinpoint that. But I will That's a pretty traumatic moment, I can't yeah, lie. So exactly. that probably makes sense, yeah. <laughs> but I will always remember that moment that my fear of dogs ended. It was when I was in sixth form and I had free periods, so I went up to Wanted High Street and I was talking to my dad on the phone and I was sitting on a bench in the park and this really fluffy border collie walked by, like literally pranced by, looked at me and it just looked like it was smiling at me with his tongue out, looking all goofy. And I just remember saying to my dad right then and there, why am I afraid of these things? And that was it. From that moment on, I was able to go out and enjoy life. But the problem with when I was younger and I had that fear and I didn't go out, I unfortunately put on quite a substantial amount of weight. Mm. And then going into the hell of high school wasn't great. And that is without a doubt the biggest part of my life which affected me mentally. Because I was ridiculously bullied and I had zero friends until I was in sixth form. I Mm. didn't have any friends at all. How did you go about changing it in regards to your physical weight so did you try and lose weight did you exercise and then when did that change happen for sixth form then was it instant was it just people getting older was it something that you did to ingratiate yourself more what Mm. happened it was hard losing the weight because there was still the element of me that was afraid of dogs so I didn't go out as much and because it was so bad for me at school I would just want to go home and just just want to be away from people and I wouldn't necessarily comfort eat because my mum always had this thing of any sort of sweet treats. That would be a holiday thing, you know. Like Cocoa You're lucky Pops. there, mate. Yeah. I wasn't part of that. <laughs> Cocoa Pops. I've still got a... fat boyfriend in my head when I <laughs> snack on foods. Cocoa Pops with that uh, holiday cereal and stuff like that. So it's not like I could comfort eat in anything. Yeah. But what I would do is, because I would eat throughout the day. I wouldn't have breakfast. I wouldn't have lunch because I didn't want to eat in front of anyone at school. I would then come home and I would have effectively two portions of dinner. I'd have my first portion and I'd go back for seconds. Ah. And that would carry on feeding into that whole thing. And I tried going to the gym at some points, not when I was at high school, because the gym at school, the kids would go to as well. So I didn't want to be around them. I just keep to myself. So the thing that I started doing was I just cut back on what I was eating, how much I was eating, which was the biggest impact for me. Because once you stop eating as much, actually your body does recede enough Mm. to then give you that push to keep going and then I joined the gym and it's hilarious moment where at the end of it was either year 10 or 11 one of the few people who was actually nice to me turned to the kid who bullied me the most and just said you better watch out because one day Rory's going to rock up and he's not going to be large anymore and he might just punch you in the face yeah and he laughed at that and then six form came around and I had shredded the way not massively but enough to where I actually looked relatively trim with still mm. a bit of chub. Basically, a little bit more than what I look like now. Mm-hmm. And 
you could just see that this boy, he then suddenly saw me for the first time since year 11 and he just, his face just kind of dropped and he walked away quite quickly from me because he'd seen that weight has now lost, has, has now been lost and who knows what I would do. Little did he know I'm actually a very passive person. I wouldn't actually have punched him. You gave the impression. I gave yeah, the impression. Yeah. I can look like a, a mean person, but deep down I'm just a You've got the tattoos as well. I got the yeah. tattoos. <laughs> yes, the mental health tattoo and the music tattoo. <laughs> yeah. if, you, uh, if people stare hard enough, then they won't realise, yeah. but yeah. Maybe if, I, if they saw my chest tattoo, then they'd be a little <laughs> bit different. <laughs> Let's talk about Abbey Road again, because you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the pod. We get there and you were diagnosed with depression. So mm. just talk to me about the experiences you had leading up to the diagnosis, perhaps the mm. event itself, and then that aftermath. It was actually a little bit before Abbey that I was diagnosed. It was okay. whilst, it was second year of university. And I thought a lot of my mental health side had kind of... It wasn't what it ended up. Before, it was all about the bullying. And that was traumatic. And I thought, hey, I'm no longer at school anymore. Those bullies have gone. I can reinvent myself. And I did for the most part. But the thing that creeped back into my mind that affected me then was my dyslexia because I thought that I was less than everyone because I'm dyslexic. And I tried to again reinvent myself and say, ah, it doesn't bother me that much. And I allowed people to make jokes, not vicious jokes, but just like kind of like you go down the street with my flatmates and they're like, oh, Rory, what does that sign say? And like, <laughs> and, you know, give them the middle finger or something like that. And then it got too much for me yeah. and then it affected me. But that wasn't the catalyst for the diagnosis. I'm not going to go into detail because it's, well, it's not fair on my friends because my friends are lovely people. But unfortunately, it does involve an incident with them, which was they they had no idea. Sure, sure. It involved a drinking game that went too far, but because they didn't know it had gone that far. And if they knew what was happening to me, at they that wouldn't moment, have done it. And that's they fine. Would yeah, never yeah, 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 have yeah, done it because they're all part of like the mental health crew as well. Yeah, they all have mental health issues. And they would never knowingly put yeah, me in that sure. position. That's fine. But unfortunately, it did put me in that position. And that is when I suddenly had this feeling that no one cares about me. No one loves me. No one wants to be with me. And then all of a sudden, all those feelings of being bullied and the dyslexia they came back. Came back yeah. Because one of the main things that the bullies made me feel was no one's going to love me. Yeah. No Very one's going to care journey, for me. Mate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So all of that then came rushing back to me. And I would just say like, oh my God, my entire life, no one's actually loved me. No one's cared about me wow, what, what's going on? What's yeah. going to happen now? And I went into a very bad spiral. I remember going, coming back from this weekend away with the friends and instantly getting some alcohol, drinking, and I was planning to end it that night. Mm. And I was about to go out and end it. And then my girlfriend called me, who I'm still with, and she heard that I was in tears. Mm. And she just said, all right, I'm coming to get you. You're coming back to my house. You're not staying alone tonight. Because I was alone at my mum's house. There was no one in. And I then went back to university and I had the diagnosis come through and it was, it was a bit of a weird time because I bounced through therapist to therapist, counsellors to counsellors, everything like that. The first person I saw, she was in tears when I told her what was happening to me. So I thought, wow, okay, this is bad, but it seems like she cares. So she then put me to someone else. That person was terrible and basically would just parrot everything I would say back to me. Like, I would tell him, hey, I feel sad and I kind of want to die. And he would then just be like, oh, so you're quite upset at the moment. And that makes you f have feelings of ending it all. And I was like, yes. But how does that help me kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You wanted action. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. even when I was telling him I want a different therapist, he would then parrot that back to me like, so you're quite agitated at the moment. And it makes you feel like you want to see someone different. And like, no, 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 no. I want to stop seeing you and see someone different. I'm like, oh, all right then. Okay. Just And he just sent me off to someone else. And this person really helped me. But then I missed one therapy session because she wasn't there. I even turned up and she didn't turn up to the session. And apparently that meant I had missed it. So I got discharged. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. I then got put onto the NHS therapy session. It was a group therapy session. But oh. they had put me in with the wrong therapy you session. Like addicts? I was in with um, emotionally charged people and um, so like personality anger issues and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So they will be all going around saying like, I had a breakdown in the Tesco's and my like kids saw me punch the, the wall time. or something. Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just there. Just completely I, different from your experience. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I kind of tried to die earlier. Yeah. So, and I would look around at their sheets. I know I shouldn't have. And they were saying like, it was this thing of, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you want to end it they all put like ones and twos and i was putting nines and tens yeah for three weeks i didn't say anything they had never heard me speak at all 
And then finally, the person running it caught onto this, pulled me to the side and said, what's wrong? And I told them, like, okay, we're going to put you in on one-on-one therapy and we're going to let you know. And I was like, great, cool. I then had to go away. a long while there, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. It, get, it doesn't end there, though. Yeah. <laughs> I then had to go away for two weeks because I was looking after my mum's cat and I wanted to go home anyway. And I didn't get anything from the NHS. No texts or emails, any, no calls. Bear in mind, that's how they've always contacted me. They always emailed me, called me or texted me. I then get home after two weeks and I find a bunch of letters at university from the NHS telling me, hey, you've got a place. You start tomorrow. Hey, you missed your first session. You've got one more chance. You're sending it all to your old address. They sent it to my university address. Right. But they sent letters. They never messaged me or anything. And that was the first time they'd ever sent me a letter as well. So I was just like, what? So I went without therapy, but I went on medication instead. And I, at this point, was a self-made alcoholic, basically. Mm. I would be drinking every day because I just wanted to go to sleep. I just wanted to numb the pain. And I went to the doctor and he said, are you self-harming? And I still thought self-harming just meant cutting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I said, no, I'm not. And he just looked up at me very suspiciously. He he obviously knew. And he just went, how much do you drink? And that's when I just kind of went very quiet, shut up. And I was like, um, about two bottles of wine a night. And he went, yeah, you're self-harming. <laughs> so that's where it all started. And it was rough. It was really, really rough. There were so many days where I was just uncertain about what was going to happen. What was I going to do? How was I going to feel waking up? I remember one day I went to bed and I just literally slept for almost 48 hours. I didn't do anything. And I woke up to so many calls and messages from people because I was just, I just turned myself off from the world. Mm. You said something off air to me, which I found very profound. And it mm. comes back a little bit to your music journey. And you said music saved my life. Mm. So tell me what you meant by that. How did it save your life in this period? Well, it was the only thing that would keep me engaged. A lot of the time when I try and have my mental health days, I would ultimately try and do something that interests me where I could just kickstart my brain again. And that tends to be playing games. Like at the moment, it'll be playing Breath of the Wild on the Switch because it's calming, it's relaxing, it requires minimal effort. Escapism. It's escapism, but at the same time, it draws me in. But at university and at Abbey Road, I didn't have that either the time or the drive to do that. So what I would do is I would literally just put on music and I would just listen for all my favourite artists, all these tracks, everything like that. I would even actually write music. Like one of my um, earlier good therapists, she told me to write songs rather than focusing on trying to go out and do something. Put all of that feeling and what you're feeling onto a piece of paper, write a song. So that's what I did. And that was actually one of my coursework submissions that got me quite good grades actually as well weirdly enough but what stopped me from going out and doing things was listening to music because it's that kind of trope of oh i really like this song i'm gonna to listen to it again oh one more song one, one more song one more song and little by little actually i started really just getting into the music again what and were the what albums we... that really helped you at that point or oh songs? you know it's that emo classics it'll be your fallout boy mcr mcr yeah. rise against was definitely the biggest one i'd just seen them live at this point as well and they were about to release some new music so what year is this 2000 and this what, would have been nine? 2000 and no this would have been 2016 oh so very much yeah, 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 yeah okay. this is in my final years of university and yeah it would just be constantly listening to that and because my snobbery had also left a bit i was listening to newer music i actually started listening to some things like grime listening to a lot more r&b and hip-hop mm -hmm. i was listening to so much and then i'll go watch a movie and i'll be like i want to go listen to that soundtrack i remember me and my friends we went to go see big hero six in the uh yeah, yeah when yeah. it came out and when we realized that fallout boy had a song on that we were like what so this I must have been a later fallout boy yeah, yeah. I, jumped, I jumped off after folly adur i think yeah no it was yeah. quite it's uh i can't remember what the album that this was, was it save on. rock and roll that album or it was after that after one. that okay yeah and we were just like what and i just loved that song so i then listened to that album i was like oh my god this is such a good album and then i went on a massive fallout boy high where i literally would listen to nothing but their music music on the way into the university and then me and my girlfriend went to go see them live as well and that, oh, was, very that was amazing so yeah so music in that regards it's what started as a distraction turned into a newfound love obsession past what it used to be because it used to just be i would listen to muse and rise against that was literally that was my two bands that i would listen to when i was at school then all of a sudden it became this 
weird mishmash of genres and artists so and songs yeah. exactly yeah. that I was just kind of like oh I want to listen to this and then that's when I got Shazam and whenever I go out I'd be like what's that song oh I'm going to listen to this a lot yeah, what's that song I do it all the time yeah. I did it on a Narcos Mexico episode the other month yeah, I did it to uh, I was playing Miles Morales on the I just got a PS5 guys and one of the songs at the very beginning I was like oh what's that and it's um, is it Sunflower Humble's? no it's not Sunflower it's, oh. it's that's from uh, the movie oh don't forget that's Into the Spider-Verse yeah, 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 yeah which is also a great song and a great movie it's by Jaden Smith I can't remember what it's called I just got it on Shazam and I was like oh I'm going to add that to my playlist and mm-hmm. I end up making a Miles Morales playlist <laughs> and so yeah what turned to a, a, from a distraction was an obsession and that literally stopped me from doing things and yeah. it would calm me down so rather than going to alcohol it would be music that I'd be going to and yeah, here I am now, still standing. Let's reflect then on this mental health journey, Raw. So A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Roy who was finding his feet in school with the musical talent he had, but he was being bullied about his weight, the Roy who was struggling in the depths of that depression in your university years, or the Rory who was in that first vent gig learning <laughs> on his feet as he did the job, what would you say to him knowing what you do now, mate? Looking back... It's weird to think where I am now, because obviously when you're in those pits of depression where you are thinking, that's it, it's ending, you never actually think, where are you going to go next? Because it's always like, well, there is no next. The next is, I'm you at can't the see end. Future. Yeah. So again, linking back to what I said about Abbey Road, having that patience really, really helps a lot. But it's also just trying to really think, even if you actually do think there is no one, there is always someone even if it's not immediate close friends or family, if your close friends aren't there for you, then maybe you need to have some new friends coming in. But there's always people you can talk to. There's always charities you can talk to. Come to event gig. There's lots of people there that you can talk to. Samaritans. Please, guys, I've sold very little tickets for this one so far. (laughs) Come on, get those tickets in. Come on. But even if you talk to Samaritans, and the NHS can be not the greatest therapy place in the world, but you can talk to them. You can talk to your GP. There are a lot of people you can talk to. And looking back on that journey now, I was very lucky with who I could talk to. I mean, you were unlucky in some respects with having to be very trial and error. I mean, I was very lucky. I've never had a bad therapist, but Mm. you had to force your way through different ones. And uh, that was just a drive and determination thing because even though I didn't want to live at that point, there was still a part of me that wanted to see where I could go. And because I had this amazing girlfriend, I wanted to see where we could go with that. And we're, we're eight years strong now. And all of my friends, we're now so much better in who we are now because we've grown up a lot alongside each other. And I'm so glad I'm here for those moments. So it's just about finding that drive to think. It's hard to think about it then and there, but think, what could you be missing if you were to end it? What could you lose? Because you may not have those close friendships and family members, but you could go on to be one of the most successful people in your career and your field. You could go on to meet the love of your life, no matter who it is. You could find out something new about yourself that you've never known before and explore something new. It's absolutely amazing. Life is constantly twisting and turning where you're finding out new things about yourself every day. I'm still learning new things about myself every day. And if I had ended it, I would have never realised all these amazing things. And plus I would have missed out on so many amazing video games, gigs, music, artists, movies, film, films are movies, TV shows, so many things. And it's just about finding that time to hold on. When you look at things like talking back to who I was, I don't know what I would say to that kid at once at high school. It's just, I would just say, look, you're not going to believe me because why would you? But if you hold out, you'll find the love of your life. You'll find a career path that you would never think that you would succeed in. You would meet friends that you would never, ever, ever thought you would have. Or you would meet friends that you really wanted to be friends with that you actually will be friends with. You will experience things that you can't even begin to fathom. And most importantly, you'll get older and you'll realise bodies are nothing. It means nothing. Everyone is different. I'm happy with being a little bit chubby now. I don't care. I'm a very healthy, strong person, but I have a bit of a tummy and that's fine. You'll look back and you'll realise those people who bullied you, you could easily say something against them, but you're not going to because it doesn't matter. And bodies are going to change. And when you grow up, you'll realise that actually societal standards will change because now we have body positivity. We have plus size models. 
and that's amazing. Obviously, that's more in the field for women, which is definitely needed and is amazing. But we are starting to see plus size models in men. I believe it's Rihanna has got some uh, as an yeah, underwear yeah, yeah, line fancy. for yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's your body is not going to mean anything in the future. It's such a moot point. Just hold on and realize that the best is yet to come. And I can even have someone come back in time to say, uh, say that to me now. The best is probably yet to come. And that is the same for my time all the way around my life, be it school, university or Abbey Road. I would just go back and say, you have no idea what's coming in a good way. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, you got a storm coming. But it's very much like there's always something positive. Our final topic of conversation, Raw, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Unfortunately, at the moment, it's a bit of a bad one, but it's one of those fluctuation things where I'll be able to get back on my feet to just find the time to have that yep. mental health day. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you were realising that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Oh, that would have definitely come later. That would have been when I was at university because even though I was aware of my bullying situation, I still believed it was purely physical based on my weight rather than mental health reasons. Looking back now, obviously it would be that. But when I first realised it would have been in first year of university, I was allowing people to talk about my dyslexia. That's when I was like, no, this is affecting me up here mm. rather than anywhere else. Mm. Tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health and how do you look back on it? Did it feel like on one hand, a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, did it feel like something very easy, insignificant and normal to do? It felt massive. It was the first... <laughs> always feels massive always for a lot of men. It feels massive. I don't know what will be the best way to describe it, but if anything, it'll be talking to my girlfriend, opening up and telling her how I feel and how I felt back then and not knowing... Because it's, it's that vulnerability thing. You're mm -hmm. opening yourself up, no matter who it is to be, your mum, your dad, your friends, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your partner, it doesn't matter. You're always going to feel utter horrible trepidation it's trepidation yeah. Yeah, yeah because you're opening yourself up and being vulnerable to someone even though you've already been vulnerable to that person many times it's a different kind of vulnerability and you never know how they're going to react they never know if they're just going to look at you and scoff and say grow up mm. grow a pair whatever you know you get all those things thrown around i've had all of it i've had the man up i've had the smile more i've had the just you know don't be sad i've had it all thankfully my girlfriend was never like that but it's always that trepidation as you said about what's mm. going to happen and it didn't feel great no what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health mate it could be things people say to you it could be a sound a sensation being in a particular social environment watching a particular film or have you not figured all of them out yet i figure new ones out every day basically <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it changes constantly i'm surprisingly good at things like seeing depression on screens like you know people to oh, i've been told i'm not allowed to by my friends i'm not allowed to watch bojack horseman because it will just trigger me but then i can weirdly watch other things where cl clearly someone's gonna you know commit suicide or they're gonna be depressed or have depression later yeah. on and i'll be fine with it i can help so many of my students with mental health issues and anxiety attacks and it doesn't affect me but then there'll be times where i just walk home and it'll be on the walk home it just all comes flooding back. Maybe I've built up too much and I haven't done enough mental health days. Or maybe it's just I suddenly think about my past. One that I found recently is a bit more of a sensory thing. Me and my girlfriend tried to go to an interactive exhibition. And it started off in complete darkness with a voice just in the room somewhere. And then they all of a sudden was just kind of eerie, ominous drones mm. music going on. And that just panicked me. And all of a sudden I just felt really depressed and I had to be escorted off the premises because I was like about to have a panic attack. What tools and methods conversely then do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? So the thing that will always help me the most I have to have to start the day I have to acknowledge what I'm feeling. It's a thing that I've tried many times and it works every time for me I steer into the depression. I, I, I'm controlled enough to not allow myself to harm myself or do anything. But there's so often, especially for men, where we don't acknowledge our emotions and our mental health. So what I have to do is I have to actively say, 
I'm feeling sad, I'm going to feel sad now. And I allow myself to go through the motions and even talk to myself. I'll actually talk out loud to myself and have a conversation to reconnect myself with this feeling that I'm having to what I should be feeling. Once I've done that, I stay in my pajamas all day. I will play in my comfort game, which I said earlier, it's Breath of the Wild. I'll throw my headphones and listen to music at the same time as doing that. So I'll literally just put on my feel good playlist and it will just go through all these old classics, new classics, everything like that. And just go, go, go. The things that haven't helped me, and I, maybe I'm weird in this regards, is exercise. I know everyone says exercise releases endorphins and serotonin. Go, do it. The last thing I want to do is step outside on a day when I need a mental health day. I'm not saying it doesn't work for everyone, but for me personally, it just doesn't gel. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, mate, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Well, there are two books that come to mind specifically. One of them is mental health related, and one was just one that I was glued to. I would start with the mental health one just because it's more important. It's called Five Reasons to Live by Matt Haig. Reasons to Stay Alive, you mean? That one, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes, Five Reasons Someone to Stay Alive. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's really good. My girlfriend got it for me, and I read it. It's very, very easy to read. I don't do a lot of reading because of my dyslexia, but this was so easy to read. I couldn't put it down. I finished it. I then read it again because it helped me because having someone lay out how they're feeling and it relates so heavily to you, it suddenly makes you realize, hey, I'm not alone in this. And maybe what he does, I can do. He was talking about how daunting it was to just go around the corner to the local shop. I felt that at university, I had a co-op literally three doors down I couldn't go to the co-op because I was too afraid. So having that in there was just so handy. But the book that I love that I just couldn't put down, because I, as I've said before, I'm a massive nerd, was the Avatar book, Avatar Kyoshi. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is amazing because it's not like the show. It is brut it's quite brutal. It doesn't shy away from having a bit more of a darker side to it. And I just couldn't put it down. And I just read it cover to cover, loved it. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? My mantra would be, mental health is like the tides. It changes constantly. You will have good days and you'll have bad days. And they will just come and go like the waves. You'll never know when it's going to happen. And you never know if it's going to be better or worse. You may you know, go outside and the tide is way out and it'll be calm seas. You may go outside and it's storming. And you just need to know that with one tide comes the other. One day when it's storming, you'll know the next day it won't. It's just about, again, as I've said before, patience and knowing that the tides will actually change. And as a final question, mate, this is another broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? They just need to talk to people. I know that's such a simple term and it's easier said than done, but it's just about talking to people. I've always had this philosophy that I've told so many people, be it my students or my, my girlfriend or my friends or anyone who wants to hear it. If someone is not going to support you for who you are, they are not your friends. They're not your family. If you come out to them and say, I am really depressed at the moment and they just take the piss out of you they're not your friends and it's the same with everything be it you know actually coming out as the lgbt plus if they're not supporting you they're not your friends if you have all these issues they're not your friends if as in if they don't support you through that they're not your friends you need to find those people that will listen to you and there are so many people who will listen to you if you go to somewhere by yourself like a gig so again get the tickets for uh, just checking in <laughs> but if you go to a gig, you'll find that there are people there who are so like-minded. If you go to Comic-Con, there are people there that are so like-minded. If you go out to a cafe, you'll probably find that people are so like-minded. I know it's weird talking to people in public, but you can. And there are people you can talk to, be it Samaritans or any other of those charities that are designed to help you. To just talk to them. The best thing you can do, the strongest thing you can do is talk to people. It's so unbelievably strong. It's difficult, but it's so strong to just talk to people. And on that note, Rory Aitken, my mate, thank you so much for coming on behind the mic, coming on the Just Checking In pod, finally, and talking to me, mate. <laughs> no worries. <laughs>
Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thank you to my mate Rory for being my special guest on this episode, for his honesty and for letting me go behind the mic with him. As always, I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you like what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please give us a five-star rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, guys... It is always okay to vent.